something wonderful. It is a mystery I can't fully understand. Death is not the final word we once thought it was. Death is more of a change, really, than it is an ending. Maybe it happens to us one by one as our bodies die. Maybe it happens all at once at the end of things. There's an old and mysterious saying that seems a bit clearer now, death swallowed by life. Death is not the last word. Who's afraid of death now? So don't hold back, my friends. Let us throw ourselves into the work of transforming the world. Death swallowed by life. Death is not the final word. Who's afraid of death now? If you grew up in church, the more familiar wording of this text would have been, Where, O death, is thy sting? Many have heard uh, me tell the story before of how Rome co-opted early Christianity, and when it did, we as a tradition took a big step back from our early rooted origins. We moved from being a transcending tradition, being a universal spirituality tradition into organized religion. That's what Jesus set before us, though, was a transcending and universal spirituality. The experience of the interior spirit of God, the divine life within us, what we on Easter are referring to as the spirit of the risen Christ, that's bigger than sectarian religion. And that's what Jesus taught, that's what Jesus lived, indeed, that's what Jesus was killed for. When I was growing up in church, there was a phrase that was commonly batted about. It was this, Jesus, Jesus did not give us a religion. He gave us a relationship with God. Now, I was young, and I was concrete in my thinking, and I took those words literally, and I didn't understand them. Because I thought when our teachers were saying relationship with God, that meant something akin to how I would have a relationship with you. And I didn't have anything like that with God, so I didn't understand it. But through the years, I came to understand what they were getting at, but I've had to tweak the words in order to get them to work in my mind, and so what I've come up with is this. Jesus did not give us a religion. He showed us that every one of us can experience God directly. Jesus did not give us a religion. He showed us that every one of us can experience God directly or firsthand. That's better for me because the word experience can have a hundred different textures, there's a wide variety of experience, and you don't have to have the same kind of experience that I have, and this wide variety of experience is bigger than the lockstep uniformity that is implied in the word religion. Jesus did not give us lockstep uniformity. Rather, Jesus showed us how to experience God firsthand, a universal spiritual reality that is bigger than religion. Well, that was the framing matrix of our tradition for the first three or four hundred years. We were spiritual but not religious. You heard that before? But when Rome took over, for political reasons and for territorial reasons, we underwent a fundamental shift. Instead of a transcending tradition, instead of us being bigger than sectarian religion, we started to try and make a better sectarian religion. And in truth, in many ways, we did. 
as far as religions go, it's been a pretty good one. It works on many fronts. It does point us to God in many ways. Even in its diminished sectarian form, it works pretty well. But organized religion, that wasn't what we were shooting for in the beginning. And some among us have always known that. And some among us have always held on to that. And there has always been a cohort through each generation that has held on to the original purpose, the prime directive. Many have stepped back from the institutional side of things and have always pursued the original intent. The first to see the reduction and step away from it, they got to work right as Rome was institutionalizing the tradition. In the 300s, a group of spiritually hungry men and women not content with second-hand spirituality or hierarchical institution, this group of men and women left town. They went out to the desert in what is now northern Egypt. They went out to live lives in the pursuit of first-hand encounter with the Spirit of God. And they were really successful in their pursuit. They asked and it was given unto them. They sought and they found. They knocked and the door of spiritual experience was opened to them. And today we call them the desert fathers and the desert mothers. And they left for us a rich body of spiritual wisdom. They taught us about direct encounter with God. They taught us a universal way of being spiritual that is bigger than religion, transcends institution. They taught us to quiet the mind. They taught us to quiet the heart. They taught us to quiet the noise of the ego. They taught us to be present to the moment as a way of experience the divine directly. They taught us this universal way of being spiritual and not religious. A lot of what we practice today as the contemplative spirituality that you hear a great deal about in our community was hammered out there in the 300s and the 400s in the desert of northern Egypt. And, and this is the point I want to talk about today, they left a profound point of counterintuitive wisdom for those who could hear it. It was incredibly insightful, though counterintuitive. 1,700 years later, I was reading the story of a monk recounting his life as a novice, and he remarked that this wisdom proverb from the Desert Fathers and Mothers was stenciled on every trash can in the entire monastery as a way of keeping it ever in their minds, and it was this. The ancient wisdom proverb was this, keep your death ever before you, keep your death ever before you. Now today is Easter, and I don't imagine every church on the planet is reading the text that we chose for this morning, but I wouldn't be surprised if more are than aren't. It's kind of an Easter text, death swallowed by life, death is not the last word, who's afraid of death now? I'd be a bit more surprised, however, if other church are quoting the desert teachers and saying, keep your death ever before you. Keep your death ever before you. Thank you, Grampy. Why would they teach us that? Why would they say that? And why would St. Benedict, 200 years later, write it into a handbook that has been followed for the 1,500 years since to the place that it's even now? being stenciled on trash cans today. Today for our Easter lesson, I'd like to give you two reasons why keep your death ever before you is so deeply rooted in our tradition. 
And I think it will inform the way that we live our spiritual lives, and I think it will give us permission to take up a way of being spiritual that is bigger than religion. Okay, why keep your death ever before you? Well, first, because of what we celebrate today. First, because what we celebrate when we celebrate Easter. What we sang and what we read this morning, death is not the final word, our tradition teaches us. When you keep death ever before you in our tradition, you also keep death is not the final word ever before you. In a way, Easter is very much about death because the whole point of life swallowing is that it is death that life swallows. Not unlike you and me, the early followers of Jesus were tooling along, thinking the same kind of stuff that we think, that life is life and death is death, and when our bodies die, life is over. That was the building block assumption about the nature of things, and it still is. And so, like many people do, they built their lives on the basis of that fundamental fundamental assumption. They did what we do. They tried to avoid thinking about death. It's what we do. We keep it somewhere hidden, far, far down there. They did what we do. They protected themselves from the kinds of things that would first bring it to mind. Uh, The other thing is they protected themselves from the kinds of things that would cause them death. They did what we do. They did the kind of internal mental gymnastics that are necessary to keep the most fundamental human terror at bay from overrunning our lives. We human beings, we live in an intolerable dilemma. We have these big prefrontal brains that can pick stuff up, stuff that other species on the planet don't seem to pick up. And one of the things that we picked up is the ability to sense, the ability to imagine transcendence, the immortal, the ineffable, the uncontainable. One of our ancient poets phrased it this way, we carry each one of us. We carry eternity in our hearts. We have eternity in our hearts, and yet from the day we are born, every one of us starts dying. And without us reflecting on it very much, that tension, that dilemma, that terror gets rooted inside of us, the fear of death. Some say that it is the primal human fear, the fear of death, True or not, it is a root fear behind many other fears. Like I said, most of us have hidden the fear of death way, way down in the subconscious beneath the the realm of awareness somewhere off the radar so we don't have to deal with it. But the fears that we know we have to grapple with on a daily basis, they spring from that death fear hidden way inside of us because at its core, the fear of death is the fear of not being. So, for example, most of us are conscious of the fact that we are afraid or we are anxious about not mattering. We're anxious about not mattering to the people that we want to matter to. We are anxious about not being significant, not making our mark in our company or in our family or in our uh, circle of peers. We're anxious about being insignificant. But that fear that is inside of us is rooted in the fear of not being. Not mattering, which we're aware of, is rooted in the fear of not being, which we're not aware of. The fears of the false self. 
the fear that people won't like us or don't like us or wouldn't like us if they really knew who we are. Those fears, too, are rooted in the fear of not being. The fears that we spend our lives coping to deal with what we call the false self, the fears that we build our lives to work against, they all have their core root in the fear of not being, or to put it another way, the fear that being could be taken away from us at any time. So death, the very essence of not being, death is a bitter enemy at the bedrock of the human dilemma. We have life in us, we have eternity in our hearts, and yet from the day we're born, being could be taken away from us at any time. Being will be taken away from us inevitably. And lurking inside of us, stuffed down because we find it so terribly unnerving, we carry an agitated disquiet always driving us, always shaping us, always tormenting the human condition, and it's been that way from the beginning. And when our desert teachers told us to keep our death ever before us, they were talking about dredging this unconscious fear up into conscious awareness, bringing up this hidden, this primal, this motivating drive, the drive that motivates the impetus toward the false self. They're talking about dredging it up and shining the light of Easter right on it. And the and they taught us, do it all the time. Do it every time you throw something in the trash can. Keep your death ever before you. Because that fear wants to squirrel itself away, hidden so that you never see it. Working below the radar, but nevertheless, it is a poisonous and malicious foe, a formidable enemy of the soul. So expose it to the light of Easter and do it all the time. Now, if you grew up in church, you probably heard the Easter story in very concrete terms, but if you've been at NRCC for a few Easter's, or if you read the book, or I wrote a chapter about rethinking the Christian story, you know that we've worked hard to restore mystery to our story of the first Easter. We've spoken of this transformative mystery as the experience of the spirit of the risen Christ, which is code for we don't really know what happened, but we do know what happened to the people to whom it happened. They were transformed by the experience of the spirit of the risen Christ. And it was so big that they grappled for language to talk about it. The ones who wrote about it later told the story in very concrete terms, but the ones who wrote the earliest were still grasping at words to try and articulate an experience that would not fit into words, into language, into a construct. For some, the experience of the living living Christ was a vision. That was what happened to Paul. For some, it was like a dawning realization that happened after the fact. That's what happened for the people walking on the road to Emmaus. For some, it was very tangible and touchable. But for each one of them, having experienced the spirit of the risen Christ, each one reported this. We see something now that we had not seen. Death is not the final word. When our bodies stop being, life conquers death. When we breathe our last breath, we are changed. Something happens. The story is not over. And that changes everything because the experience of Easter takes light and it takes life and it shines it into our souls. 
to the place where that death master has been hard at work, generating fear after fear after fear after fear, generating the instincts by which we are fabricating our lesser lives, and life shines light upon the death master, and it shines truth, the kinds of truth that Jesus said sets us free. So our desert teachers told us to shine that light on the death master and do it all the time. Keep your death ever before you because Easter is your birthright. Easter is your heritage. The fears that drive you are rooted in that singular fear of not being and not being is not the deepest truth. See that. And be free, they taught us. Life conquers death. Let that truth set you free. I posted a podcast that I really think you should listen to. I'll put it on our church's Facebook group. It was an interview with Dr. Greg Boyle. And in that uh, podcast or in that interview, he quotes the Dalai Lama, who when he was asked to reflect on his own mortality, said, when he was asked to think about his own death, he said, my own death. And he shrugged, and he said, eh, a change of clothes, that's all. Death is not the final word. Life wins. Now, I read The Desert Teachers when I was just a young kid. I was a late teenager. And that idea of keeping my death ever before me, I picked it up when I was quite young. But that whole idea was pretty counterintuitive for me back then as a 17-year-old kid. I was young, I was powerful, I was invincible, and death seemed like a mirage. I remember driving my mother's Pontiac Le Mans, 103 miles on the freeway, 103 miles an hour on the freeway. So I'm barreling down the freeway, and I start to think, this might be unsafe. I I might have a blowout. And I thought, that's okay. I'll put both hands on the steering wheel. Okay, now I'm safe. (laughs) So, keeping my death ever before me, I don't think I did it right when I was 17. (laughs) But I made it a practice anyway, and I have shown the light of Easter on my mortality, on my death, on my fears, and I've done it for years. And as life has demanded, as it does, that I face down my deep fears, the fears that drive my life, the false self-fears, Well, Life Conquers Death has been my traveling companion. Death Has No Sting has been a recurring refrain in my life from my childhood. And so, when I nearly ruined my marriage at year seven by my own fear-driven need to hold on to power and try and control all the variables in life, including the variable Denise, the recurring refrain was there to guide me out of my darkness. And when I have been outgrouped, and when I have been overlooked, and when I have been outcast, and my fears have created a reactionary response, the recurring refrain has been there to guide me. Death has no sting, and so consequently all the fears that have been spawned by that central fear also have no sting. They are not the final word either. They are not the truest truth. Now, the second reason that the wisdom teachers taught us to keep our death ever before us is not only 
so that we carry the power of Easter into our daily lives, not only so that we root out that primal death fear, but also so that we live the lives that we most deeply want to live. Death consciousness has a way of making the things that don't matter really jump out at us. It is instructive to listen to people who are close to death, those for whom dying is no longer an abstract concept. There is a deeply focusing effect when we realize that we will be changing our clothing very soon. And so our tradition invites us to not wait. Don't wait until we are near death. Don't wait to have that clarifying effect. Have that clarifying effect in our lives now. What would you be doing, or what wouldn't you be doing, if a doctor told you that you would be dying mid-year in 2017, 25, 26 months from now? If you knew that you would be dying in 26 months, what would you focus on, and what would you not focus on? What would you worry about? What would you not worry about? Actually, let's just take a moment. Go ahead and close your eyes and take a breath and think. Mid-year 2017, I won't be here. What do I do from now to then? And think about this. To whom would you want to give your energy? To whom would you give your intention and your purpose? Where would you want your time to go? Okay. For most of us, odds are, what we do in that situation is something different. For most of us, odds are, what we would do is something better. Keeping our death ever before us clarifies things like that. And our ancient teachers understood that. Life is full of troubles. We get slighted all the time. We get bothered all the time. Anxiety comes up. Stress comes up. We get worried all the time. But when you take those things that consume a lot of our days and you hold them up against the backdrop of death, the things that consume many of our hours, the things that consume many of our days, the things that consume the strategy making that we formulate in our mind and then we live out, those things seem pretty small, pretty insignificant. Actually, sometimes they just fall away. And that is freedom. When those things fall away because they are insignificant, that is freedom. All of the compulsions, freedom. All of the triggers, freedom. The follies that the false self chases after, being gone, the lesser self, the ego self, when all those needs, all those demands fall away, that is freedom. That's been the underlying point of this recent uh, series of lessons on the prayers of detachment. 
There's a deep wisdom that accrues to us when we take an honest assessment of the human condition. Life is impermanent. And consequently, we have a short wisp of time in order to pursue what matters, what is true, what is lasting, what is eternal. While we are living in an impermanent world, the spiritual quest is to find what is lasting in the throes of impermanence. What matters? What truly matters? And in most of our lives, what matters is not often the thing that we spend our hours and our days and our lives chasing. So we are taught, bring clarity by keeping your death ever before you. So this is a very spiritual practice. It's not a morbid affair. It's not the kind of thing that goth teenagers do. It's not the kind of things that horror movie fanatics do. This is actually just a very spiritual exercise. It helps us clarify what matters while we live on earth. I won't be here long. I get a wisp of a moment on this planet. So what is true and what is good and what is beautiful and what is important? Now, it's a spiritual exercise, but it's not a spiritual exercise we want to do. Jesus was t- talking, if you, if you read the Holy Week texts uh, this week, you, heard, you, you read the story of Jesus coming to the end of his life. And Jesus was talking to his disciples about his own death. But like us, they just didn't want to hear it. They don't want to talk about that. That's not something we want to consider. But the gift of clarity, that's what the ancient wisdom offers us. Death is not the final word. Death is a certainty as long as we live in these bodies. And when we keep that reality ever before us, what matters gets clarified, what matters gets awakened in us, and what matters gets laid out before us. An interesting thing, having seen this happen, is that this last phrase in our text is kind of important for the clarified life. So don't hold back, my friends. Let us throw ourselves into the work of transforming the world. When people get clarified, they live life differently. I've spoken to many who were near death about life, and what matters to them is always less about what we get, and it always becomes much more about what we give. What life, what matters when our souls get clarified is what we've talked about last year in that lesson on rethinking salvation. To encounter the divine in a first-hand way, that matters. To be transformed by the encounter, yeah, that matters. And then to bring that transformation into the world that we are creating each day, that really matters. When we're freed up from the drives of the lesser self, freed from the need to get ahead, freed from the need to assert ourselves or the need not to assert ourselves, freed from the need to bolster up our own worth or to preserve ourselves. When we get clarified, what we want is kind of what our text says. We want to not hold back. We want to give ourselves in service to something bigger than ourselves. We want to give ourselves in service to the mission of transforming our worlds. We want to give our children the deep security of being loved deeply so that they are held in good stead. We want to transform 
their lives. We want to offer our wisdom and our compassion and our strength, whatever gifts we have to our families and to our friends, to the world. We want our work to matter. We want to better the earth. We want to put our hands to repairing what is broken and healing those who are wounded and inviting in those who have been pushed out, in-grouping the out-grouped. When our hearts get clarified, what the human soul wants is to give ourselves away in service to something bigger than ourselves. That's what's deepest down in there. We want to not hold back. We want to throw ourselves into the work of transforming the world. If you recall that lesson from a year ago, rethinking the meaning of the word salvation, that's what a clarified heart wants. The interior experience of divine life. Giving ourselves in service with the transformed experience from within, bringing that to bear on the worlds we create. That's down deep inside of us. It's there. The wisdom of the desert teachers was to say, find it. And here's a way you can. Keep your death ever before you. That's what they taught us. Bring the light of Easter and shine it on this death master within. Bring it to bear on your daily life. And then awaken to this, the deep desires of the human heart with a clarified eye. Every one of us dies, but death has no victory. Keep that ever before you and let it clarify for you what really matters and how to live well. And so, Holy Spirit, may that be so among us as we follow Jesus. Amen.